0: So, I think I know the answer to this question, but I'm going to ask it anyway. For, for everybody here, have you ever been talking to somebody, been in a conversation, whether it was a heated conversation or just a normal conversation, whatever, and you said something you wish you hadn't said? Yeah. It's a human condition, right? So, kind of a, a whoopsie moment. Uh, Maybe you were talking to a friend and you let a secret out about somebody else. Or or maybe you were not seeing eye to eye with somebody and you said your mama or something. You know, something like that. That keeps coming up, doesn't it? That's not going away. But you said something that really hurt the person you were talking to and you did it to verbally jab them and you kind of did it on purpose. And then as soon as you did it, you were sorry that you did it happens a lot, doesn't it? Words. Anybody see Roxanne, the movie Roxanne? I was afraid of worms, Roxanne. What you supposed to say was words. We should be afraid of words because words come out sometimes that either we really meant and shouldn't have said or that we wouldn't normally say but say them in the heat of the moment and most of the time it's because our emotions get the best of us most of the time and it's an awful feeling isn't it you say something and you just watch somebody deflate in front of you and you know it's because of what you said and you're like oh wow and the old illustration of the toothpaste coming out of the tube and you can't put it back in and I think it was John MacArthur that was talking about sound waves that are released never go away So they're out there bouncing around in space. And so literally, our words never go away. How does that make you feel? Those words that you didn't mean to say, they're out there. And not only are they bouncing around Pluto or somewhere right now, but they're probably bouncing around in somebody's head, maybe bouncing around in somebody's heart. And we've all been there. happens a lot. Well, I guess sometimes, either way, as the words come out, whether we meant them to or not, we've got to deal with the consequences of what we said, right? Sometimes they do major damage to a relationship. Sometimes they change your complete standing with somebody, and you cannot take them back. You can be sorry. You can apologize. You can grovel. You can beg. You can plead for forgiveness, and you can even receive forgiveness, But the words don't go away. We can't undo them. Those words were manifested as you spoke them out in the form of sound waves. And they'll always be around, bouncing around in space and in the memories and hearts and feelings of the people that we hurt, that we love, or that we don't love. And there's nothing we can do to undo those words. So here's the real problem. We said those words because we had those thoughts, those emotions, those feelings inside of us. And that's why the words came out. It ain't like it was just like, you know, divine revelation and you say something that you never thought or felt before. Oh, thou art Christ, the Son of the living God. Congratulations, Peter. No, that's not what we're talking about. What comes out of us has been in us all along. And that's a little disturbing, isn't it? We can say we didn't mean it, but really what we're saying is, I don't feel that way now. Or I just couldn't help how I felt when it came out. What is in us has a very consistent tendency to find its way out of us. And sometimes that makes for some really bad news for us and for other people. So we'll see that today in today's passage as Jesus expands on what we saw last week through what He says in our passage for this week. And if you weren't with us, and if you haven't been with us, if you're a guest, we've been journeying through the Gospel of Matthew for quite a while now, and we're in chapter 12, and today's passage that we're looking at to try to decipher and uncover is Matthew 12, verses 33 through 37. If you have a Bible, turn there. If you don't, we will have the words up here, barring any unforeseen technical difficulties. We want, think it's important to engage as many senses as we can to get the Word in us, hear them, write them, whatever you can do. So if you would please stand as we publicly read this passage. The words of Jesus who was God in the flesh and the words that He spoke were inspired by the Holy Spirit and Matthew, under the inspiration of the same Holy Spirit, recorded them so that we can read them today. Either make the tree good and its fruit good or make the tree bad and its fruit bad, for the tree is known by its fruit. You brood of vipers, how can you speak good when you are evil? For out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaks. The good person out of his good treasure brings forth good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak, for by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, we need your help, and we know that you came, were poured out, As Jesus was glorified and you came so that you might reveal him to us. So that we might see him and know him and love him the way that we should. So we ask you to help us do that this morning. Teach us and instruct us. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. It's another one of those old man passages, right? Oh man. And we'll start here with verse 33. Either make the tree good and its fruit good. Or make the tree bad and its fruit bad, for the tree is known by its fruit. So I would have really liked to have included this passage in with last week's passage because it it's the same vein of thought, the same flow, but we just, time and space wouldn't allow it. The amount of words would not allow it. So it's very, very important <clears throat> that we understand the context of what we just read uh, In the context of what we looked at last week okay Um, we have to understand today in light of last week so recap as brief as i can jesus had healed a man who was blind mute and demon oppressed all who saw it who watched it happen were amazed and they openly wondered if jesus could possibly be the son of david or in other words the messiah And then the Pharisees caught wind of it and made the determination that since they couldn't deny that something supernatural had happened, they had to explain it away somehow, because Jesus obviously couldn't be doing things that are good. So their angle was, like it had been on another occasion, that Jesus was casting out demons by Beelzebub, the prince of demons. They decided that Jesus was operating in the power of Satan himself. Jesus knew what they were thinking, and He confronted them by saying that if He was operating in the power of Satan to cast out demons, would that, would that explain the fact that their disciples were casting out demons? So would they be casting out demons the same way that He was, which by the Pharisees' determination was by the devil? Well, of course not, because their disciples, the Pharisees would think, were operating in the power of God. So Jesus is saying, we've got some incongruence here. God works through your disciples to cast out demons, but Satan works through me to cast out demons. Then Jesus lowered the boom and said that if they are wrong about him, and they were, and if he was indeed casting out demons by the power of God, then the kingdom of God had come upon them and they didn't even know it. And then Jesus illustrated what he was doing in his working, teaching, healing, and delivering by comparing himself to a burglar. Remember that? who had entered a strong man's house, tied up the strong man, and was now taking the stuff from the strong man's house right in front of him. And then Jesus said clearly that if anyone was not with him, in other words, if they're accusing him of demonic activity, then they were against him, he who was working in God's power. And these people who were not with him were also scattering instead of gathering in God's people with them. And then the passage last week ended with a stern, we would say even alarming, warning that if anyone could see the Spirit of God working and blaspheme by attributing that working to the devil, then that sin could never be forgiven. That's a lot. No wonder we couldn't fit today's passage in with all that. But we get to now. And bearing that in mind... Verse 33 again. Either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad. For the tree is known by its fruit. So now what's this mean? Well, truthfully, up until this week of my life, I took this to mean that Jesus was calling the Pharisees to make their fruit, their tree, good or bad. Like He was calling on them to either be good or bad. But that is not what's going on here. I've been wrong 45, almost 46 years now. Um, you get used to it, really. As you get older, guys, you'll get used to being wrong. It's, 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 it's all right. Um, he has just said that them attributing his work to the devil was as bad as it could possibly, could possibly be and that they would not be forgiven either in this age or in the age to come. And then he says this that we see in verse 33. What he's saying is, Look at the fruit of my ministry. I am healing, delivering, teaching, blessing, encouraging, making and sending out disciples, doing what would appear to be the very works of God Himself. Now, either equate the good fruit with a good tree or say that the fruit is bad and thus determine that it's coming from a bad tree. You can't see people being released from demonic oppression, which is a good fruit, and say that that good fruit is coming from a bad tree. Now remember he said last week that a kingdom divided against itself cannot stand. If Satan casts out Satan, he's divided against himself. And now here, that picture is translated into a tree analogy. If a good fruit is being produced, it has to come from a good tree because a tree is known by its fruit. What's the sign that a tree is good when it produces good fruit? I remember when we worked in Tennessee back in 2000, 2001, uh, I told you we worked on a mum farm. um, And the owner was at the the plant lot where he was selling his plants to the public and he was kind of thinning out what was left. And it came by one plant and it just looked awful. I mean, it, you just, it looked worse than like the Charlie Brown tree thing. It was just, you know, had all these big beautiful mums and you had this thing that was sitting there like this. You know, looked like it was mad at the world. And, and what he said was, when he looked at it, he said, that plant's sick. And he picked it up and he dumped it out so that he could reuse the pot. There was no saving it. There was no healing it. It was bad. And he discarded it and used what he could, which was just... The pot. He threw it away. Jesus is saying here that a tree that is producing bad fruit is a bad tree, and it can't be salvaged. It's bad. If it was producing good fruit, it would be considered a good tree. But you can't call a tree that's producing good fruit a bad tree. My boss didn't walk by and see this beautiful mom and say that plant's sick. You can't look at my life. Jesus is saying and say that this fruit, this particular fruit, I think, and all of it in general too, and say that this fruit is coming from a bad tree, which is exactly what they're doing. We see that good things are being done, but the devil is doing it through you. He says you can't do that. Either make my deeds and my motives and me overall bad or lump it all together as good. You can't separate me from my deeds, and you also can't separate my deeds from me. So in your mind, Jesus says, get it settled. Either me and my deeds are good or me and my deeds are bad. None of this he casts out demons by the prince of demons stuff. It's not an option. Make your judgment and go all in on it or you don't have the right to make any sort of judgment. Jesus does not play games. Want further proof of that? Next verse. You brood of vipers! How can you speak good when you are evil? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Wolf. Can you imagine standing there and hearing this come out of this man's mouth that you hated so bad you wanted to kill him? You can't speak good, you're evil brood of vipers. Can you imagine how angry they were with Him? Again, we see it as He's hanging on the cross how angry they were with Him. You want to dance around and be unclear or double-minded in your assessment of me, Jesus says? I'll not do the same for you. He calls them a brood of vipers. John the Baptist had said the same thing back in Matthew 3. you brood of vipers who warned you to flee from the wrath to come. And Jesus will use the analogy again several times in the Gospels. Matthew 23, he'll use it again in Matthew. To say the least, it's not a compliment. Just let's explore this word picture for a minute. Now we have vipers or snakes, right? Everybody cool with that? Some small, some big, all poisonous. Vipers are poisonous. And who was the original serpent referenced in the Bible? It's not our friend, our adversary, the devil. It was the devil. He tempted Eve in the form of a serpent. So right off the bat, just being called a snake is a reference to the devilish. So that's pretty easy to figure out, but keep on going with Jesus' words. He calls them not a snake, but He calls them rather a brood of vipers. Now what's a brood? A brood, technically defined, is a family of young animals produced at one hatching or birth. Now imagine then a snake, particularly a viper, which is a common venomous snake in the geographical area that he's talking in today. And this viper has some babies. Vipers would have anywhere from 12 to 50 babies at a time. Ladies are like, whoa. (laughs) And according to a man named Justo Gonzalez, when vipers are hatched, They remain together, perhaps under a rock, until they begin to mature. But if something threatens them, they spread out and flee. End of quote. So get a picture in your head. 20, 30, 50 maybe, baby snakes. All under a rock. All coiled up and hissing, to use an Ario Speedwagon analogy. And here it seems that Jesus is yanking that rock back that covers them, exposing them. And again, Jesus does not play games. He's exposing them, their faulty thinking, their blasphemous accusations, and their false teaching with one swift stroke. And he's not nicey-nicey with it. He despises the self-inflated, self-serving, self-focused play acting of the Pharisees. And he will not deal with them gently. You big bunch of baby snakes hiding under your self righteous rock, cobbling and encouraging each other in the safety of your own snakish family, but angrily hissing at anyone who would come and reveal your hypocrisy. How can you speak good? He asks, when you're evil. Another crushing body blow by the master here. He has told them to judge rightly, to speak rightly about Him and His works, but here He declares them unable to do so. They can't speak good because they're evil. Now they've just accused him of acting good but being evil. Jesus rebuffed that and said that isn't possible. Good tree, good fruit, bad tree, bad fruit. So now he clearly identifies both their tree and their fruit. They are evil and their fruit is evil. Their tree is evil, their fruit is evil. And the specific fruit that Jesus is examining here is their words. The words they've been using to describe him as demonic. And he says, in essence, that it just makes sense that they would talk like this with their mischaracterizing words because they are working from a deficit of pure evil. So how could they speak good since they are evil? It's an impossibility. How can you little snakes now scattering from underneath your overturned rock possibly say anything that's good? Your tree is bad, so your fruit is bad. You are evil, and your words are evil. And then this for out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Again, boom. What a statement. Jesus says that what is coming out of them, what they are saying, the fruit of their tree, has its source, its root, where? In the heart. Words are the fruit, the overflow of what's in people's hearts. For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Jesus is saying that what is coming out of their mouths has its start in their hearts. And since he has said that they are evil, that they are snakes, what's in their hearts and resultantly what's coming out of their mouths is evil. And there's an abundance, an overflowing extra amount of evil in their hearts. And their mouths are the relief valve that lets that evil escape. Yikes. He's just laying it all out here, isn't he? And think about the immense applications, implications of what he's saying. He's saying they are evil. Their hearts are repositories of evil, so their words are just overflowing evil out of their evil hearts. So the picture's pretty bleak now, isn't it? Is there any semblance of hope that maybe these Pharisees are basically good people? Maybe just a little misguided. I know. Maybe they're just victims of the culture around them. Just a little bit misinformed? Well, just, maybe just a little bit different theology than Jesus has? I mean, let's give them the benefit of the doubt, right? This is just a matter of opinions, right? Jesus leaves no room for any of this. They are evil snakes whose evil hearts are bubbling over into evil words. And aren't we all in our natural fallen state? The answer to that question is yes. More on that later. But here in our passage today, suffice it to say that Jesus is making it clear that his Pharisaic accusers are evil and they cannot speak anything but evil. And then verse 35. The good person out of his good treasure brings forth good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil after exposing the Pharisees and their words as being evil, Jesus draws another comparison with good and evil and what they look like in people's lives. Jesus had said the Pharisees' evil is shown by their words and their words came out of their hearts. Well here, Jesus compares good and evil to treasure. A good person, he says, brings forth good from his good treasure. And similarly, yet conversely, the evil person brings forth evil out of his evil treasure. But the good and the evil consider what they have to be treasure. Whether it's good treasure or evil treasure. They see it and they call it treasure. And they bring it forth to show those around them. The Pharisees genuinely treasured what they believed. It was a treasure to them. And when they bring it out, they think they're sharing the best that they have. But since they're evil, their treasure sharing is really evil sharing. Like their words, it's all they can do. And if a person is good, the treasure that they share is good. Jesus is doing just that. He's showing God's very heart, God's very words, God's very spirit. It's all He can do. There's no evil in Him. So what he is bringing forth can only be good. His treasure is good. Like we saw last week, there are exactly two camps. Exactly two kinds of people. There are good and there are bad. Those with Jesus, those who are gathering, are good. Those who are against Jesus, those are scattering and they are bad. And what proceeds from each camp is what's inside of them. Their treasure is either good or evil. Now again, I would ask you to let that sink in for a minute. There's no middle ground. There's good and there's evil. None of us, nobody, is somewhere along the way between those two camps. And Christ is the determining factor. Those who are with Him are good. Those who are not with Him are evil. Now again, I'm not calling on you or me this morning to be good and be in the good camp. I'm calling you to look to Christ, who alone is good. And let Him share His good through you. Because we're not seekers along the way trying to find a way forward to do a little bit better. Only Jesus makes us good. The Pharisees were deeply religious and they're evil. The disciples are prone to sinning and stumbling, and they're good. Jesus is the dividing line that determines who is evil and who is good. What treasure is good and what treasure is evil? Did He not say, I came to bring a sword, a sword of division. You are either with me or you are against me. If you are with me, you are good. If you are against me, you are evil. And the Pharisees were not only missing this, they were opposing the very thought of it. And as such, they were speaking evil words, evil treasures out of their evil hearts. And let me just say, that's not going to end well for them. I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. They're bouncing around out there. Orbiting Pluto, which is a planet. I don't care what anybody says. Dwarf. I don't know what that means. Now hold on just a second here. Jesus has been clear that the words of the Pharisees were showing their evil hearts, but here He ups that ante to the nth degree. I tell you, Jesus says, Jesus says, the judge says, On the Day of Judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. Anybody get a little wiggle in your spine when you hear that? Well, Let's look at verse 37, then we'll join these two things together. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. Now just when you thought it couldn't get any more serious, it gets a lot more serious. Seriouser and seriouser. I'm telling you, if you look at this verse, that's overwhelming. That could be very, very scary. That could be very, very condemning. Right? I mean, he says... I tell, I'm going to go back to read verse 36 and 37 together. I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. Oh, no. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. Oh, no. We said at the beginning of the message, all of us have said things that we wish we hadn't said. We've said things we knew we shouldn't have said. And what is Jesus saying? It's going to be your words that either justify or condemn you. Oh, no. It's one thing to think about giving an account for every word we speak. Because I think yeah, I kind of get the picture like, you know, I've got my hands crossed behind my back and I'm kicking and I'm all shucksing about some of the things that I've said. God, I'm really sorry about that. But it's a completely different level to hear that we are justified or condemned by our words. A difference between heaven and hell. By our words. Now, isn't this against what we've always heard and said? Are we justified by words alone? Was that the central focus of the Reformation that so shapes our theology? Justification by words alone? No, of course not. We're justified by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, as evidenced by the Scriptures alone, to the glory of God alone, right? So, what is Jesus saying here? Is his theology bad? Is his doctrine bad? You should laugh at that. Jesus doesn't have bad doctrine or bad theology. We are justified by grace alone. Jesus would say the same thing. So what's he saying here? Well, let's settle in here for just a bit. Jesus says that people will give an account on the day of judgment for every careless word they speak. So that makes our words important, right? If God is going to hold words against people which is what it sounds like he's saying, if they're going to give an account of them in the judgment, that surely makes our words important. But again, if our justification or our condemnation is dependent on words, what are we to do? I would ask you again, have you ever spoken a careless word? I have. Worried that you might get condemned for that? That's not what Jesus is saying here. Thank God. Literally. Remember what he has said what he said in last week's passage and in what we've seen today. Our words Let me back up, let me ask it instead of say it. Are words what determine whether you are good or evil? Be careful. I'm tricking you. The answer is yes and no. Your words are the part of your heart that others can actually take in by their senses. Your words, your words are the part of your heart that others can actually take in by their senses. They can't see your heart, they can't feel your heart, but they can hear your heart as your words come out. We can't see people's hearts, but we can hear their words. And since their words come out of the abundance of their hearts, their words are the proof of their goodness or their evilness. So this elevates the place that our words take in our lives, doesn't it? I can think within myself that I'm good, that I'm right, that I'm godly, but my words will show if I am or not. If you want to know if someone is really redeemed or not, listen to their words. Now I'm not talking about asking them and getting an answer from them and just letting that settle it. No, I'm talking about following the trail of their words throughout their lives. It's not a one-time profession, but rather a lifetime pattern. The Pharisees would have had a lot of pious, religious-sounding words in their lives, but when confronted with the activity of God in their midst, it was their words that showed that they didn't know God. It was their words that accused Jesus of being empowered by Satan. And those words came out of their evil hearts because that's all that could come out of evil hearts. So even the good-sounding words were evil. And those careless, pious-sounding words would be judged alongside their blasphemous accusations against Jesus as evil. So ultimately, it was their words that condemned them. So now think about that in the grand scheme of God's work and plan. Listen to me, church. It will be words that are judged. It will be words that show whether or not someone is justified or condemned. And yes, our works will be judged as well, But in our passage today, Jesus is elevating the importance of words to make sure we and those who are hearing His words know that our words are wildly important because they show our hearts as nothing else can. How are your words, church? Because by your words, you will either be justified or condemned. Now, let me say this, and I want to be as clear as I can be. Penal substitutionary atonement. Propitiation. Jesus bore the wrath of God upon Himself for my careless words. Every one of them. I will not be condemned because of my words. Because of what Jesus has done. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. We talked about that last week. Because fear involves punishment. Whoever fears has not been made perfect in love. I will not have to put my hands behind my back and pshaw in front of God. Because He's going to say to me, Well done, my good and faithful servant. And it will be my words that get rewarded. Because the Holy Spirit of God empowered me to say good words. Does that mean all of my words are good? Absolutely not. But the bad ones are taken care of. And Jesus is looking these Pharisees in the face and He's saying, when you stand before the throne of God, when I am judging you, it will be your words that condemn you. That's all sinners had to look forward to. So Jesus is elevating the importance of words to the point that our very justification is dependent not on what we say, but is shown by what we say. We are saved by grace, and that grace is expressed in our lives through our words, or it's not. It's a pretty fitting way for Jesus to wrap up this thought pattern where he is expressing his displeasure at the Pharisees assigning his works to Satan. It's their words that provided the evidence of what was going on inside of them. It was their words that showed their hearts and it is as true for us today as it was for them then. Let me ask you, husband. Let me ask you, dad. How are your words? Mom? Kids? Because they're awfully, awfully important. So how do we apply this? mammoth passage in our lives very carefully and very pointedly as I hope we'll see in these following three C's we three C's of application confrontation conversation and condemnation three C's confrontation, conversation, condemnation say that ten times real fast actually don't don't know what will happen there. So the first application point as we look at this passage, the first is confrontation. Let's look at Jesus' use of confrontation in today's passage. And also in connection with what we saw last week. I said a few times in our message today that Jesus does not play any games. He came full throttle at the Pharisees after they accused Him of working by the power of Satan. He didn't casually laugh it off or just pshaw it away. It's just them Pharisees, you know how they are. No, no, no. He came for them with strong words and brutal honesty. Last week, he said plainly that whoever wasn't with him was against him. Whoever didn't gather with him was scattering. And then he spoke eternal, hopeless judgment on anyone who would blaspheme the Holy Spirit. And then today, he said the Pharisees were a brood of vipers, a gaggle of baby snakes who couldn't speak anything good because they were evil. Now, unless I'm just completely off base and don't know what's going on in this passage, there those are some awfully harsh words. Are they not? Is Jesus just being mean? As people would accuse. Jesus was just mean hearted. He just didn't like the Pharisees. No, he did not like the Pharisees. Why? Because they were of their father, the devil. And Jesus confronted them strictly, patiently, angrily harshly. People are like, well, he was just vindictive because the Pharisees called him names. No. Jesus is calling evil evil. And as he does so, he's not trying to spare anybody's feelings because the need was dire for him to communicate clearly that what was happening from the Pharisees was evil. And he And by association, we who are in Him simply cannot tolerate evil. And especially evil masked in religious platitudes. When the people that Jesus was confronting said that they were speaking on behalf of God, if they weren't in line and representing God accurately, Jesus skewered them consistently. And so to apply that, so should we. Now be careful. I'm not giving you a loaded gun today. Actually, I am. But hopefully we're going to learn how to handle it. Keep your booger hook off the boom switch, yeah. Ken Lusgarden taught me that and if you're listening, thank you. (laughs) Jesus absolutely emptied both barrels on religious evil people. And so should we. You're like, what? (laughs) I said, so should we. We have a responsibility as God's people in the world to confront evil. You're like, oh man, this is taking a weird turn. I wasn't expecting this today. But now that will look different in different situations. Okay, I'm going to give you three situations under this first application point of how we confront evil. Okay, so let's, let's start here. Let's say that the evil is a blatant sinner who claims no alliance or allegiance to God or the church. How do we confront that evil? Okay, we're going to go to 2 Corinthians 5, 18-21. to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. So if somebody is evil and they don't claim to be saved, what are we supposed to do? We're supposed to call their evil evil and implore them to be made right with God through the reconciliation that God provided through the sacrifice of Christ. We call them sinners and offer them the gospel. That's how we confront evil with lost people. You say, well, I'm not going to call anybody a sinner. Then you're never going to see anybody saved. Their sin has to be confronted first. Their need for a Savior has to be addressed first. So you call evil, evil. Are you saying I'm evil? Yes, I'm saying you're evil. And I'm saying that the wrath of God is coming upon the sons of disobedience. So flee from the wrath to come. Turn from your evil and turn to Christ, who will forgive you of your evil. We implore you on behalf of God, on behalf of Christ. Be reconciled to God. So here we implore people to be reconciled to God to flee from the wrath to come, okay? What if they are believers who are walking in sin? Either overtly or not so obviously. Paul's example in Galatians 2. But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face, because he stood condemned. Now, who's he talking about? Cephas is Peter. The same Peter who we see in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. The same Peter who wrote two books of your Bible under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And when he came to Antioch, Paul opposed him to his face, because Peter stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? So how do we confront evil when it's in a brother or sister in Christ? We confront it and say, that's evil, that's sin, repent! Well, that's not very nice. It's the kindest thing you can do to call their evil evil. To tell them to repent and stop acting like a sinner. Cephas stood condemned by his works and I would say his words too. Yeah, we won't eat with the Gentiles. We're not like that. Paul's like, you were like that. Now your buddies are here and all of a sudden you're too good for us? Here, Paul walked up to Peter, detailed his sin in the presence of the rest of those who were sinning like Peter, those who wouldn't associate with Gentiles because they were afraid the Jewish brethren would look down on them for eating with Gentiles. Paul boldly and lovingly called Peter and his brothers out, pointing out their specific sin and calling them to forsake it. That's how Christians handle confrontation amongst themselves. And if we're not doing it, we're not loving each other right. If we just understand why people are sinning, we're not loving each other right. You see me walking in sin, you confront me and say, you are in sin and you need to repent. When we get to Matthew 18, we'll look at how that progresses. But what about what we saw today? Our third case, right? Jesus confronted the Pharisees in a much harsher way than either of the two we just looked at. He called them names. He declared them to be evil. And He flat out condemned them. Now listen to me. That's how we are to confront false teachers in our day and time as well. We are not to give them the benefit of the doubt. We are not to extend grace. You're like, what? Stay with me. We are to call them out, expose them, and make no provision for their presence or their teaching in our midst. Do not toy with them. Do not debate them. Don't entertain their decisive or divisive or deceptive talk. Paul echoes this strategy in Titus 1, through 9-16. Listen, this is the Apostle Paul. He's talking about an overseer here. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. For there are many who are insubordinate, evil talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. He's talking about religious people. They must be silenced since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. To the pure, all things are pure, but to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure, but both their minds and their consciences are defiled. They profess to know God, but they deny Him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. Paul says these men must be silenced. They're no good. And they say one thing but show another thing by their lives. Now I'll say this. This seems to be the duty chiefly of the overseer. The elders of the church. But that does not make provision for other believers to just entertain what false teachers are saying. Stop reading their books! Stop listening to their podcasts! They're destroying you! Don't make provision for them. Don't listen to them. Don't entertain them. There is to be an identification of false teachers and a distancing and condemnation of them amongst all who call themselves godly. We are not to play nice-nice with false teachers. We are to condemn them in the name of Jesus and by the authority of the Word of God. So know how to confront evil in our world, whatever form it comes in. That was first. Sorry, that was a long one. (laughs) Confrontation was a long one. Point two is conversation. This is pretty simple from the text, right? Jesus said today that it is our words that will justify or condemn us. I mentioned this Wednesday night. So let me ask you, how are your words? The Bible is replete with exhortations about how we speak as followers of Jesus. I'm just going to read a few here. Ephesians four twenty nine. Which time out before we read that, some of the highest, grandest theology in all the Bible is in Ephesians one, two, and three. And in chapter four he's talking about, what are you talking about? Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. Ephesians 5. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. How many times have I justified something that I said because, well, it was funny. Stop it. Stop it. Just because something's funny doesn't mean that it's okay to say it and thus grieve the Spirit of God. Colossians 3, 8-10 But now you must put them all away, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you've put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its Creator. Look at those words again there. Do not lie to one another. How do we lie with our words? How much of your talk is dishonest? How much of your talk is self-preserving? Trying to save face in front of people? Stop it. We could go on and on here and we won't. But let's just suffice it to say that what we say is of utmost importance in our Christian life. You want to know if somebody's saved or not, listen to what they say. So, what's the application point? Clean up your mouth. Don't talk like an unbeliever. Sanctify your speech by the power of the Spirit of God. David read this this morning. We're going to read it again. It's just, I mean, it's as good as it gets in the Bible about our tongue, right? Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. For we all stumble in many ways, and if anyone does not stumble in what he says... He's a perfect man, able also to bridle his whole body. If we put bits in the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we we guide their whole bodies as well. Look at the ships also. Though they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they're guided by a very small rudder wherever the will of the pilot directs. So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. For every kind of beast and bird, of reptile and sea creature can be tamed, and has been tamed by mankind, but no human being can tame the tongue. It's a restless evil full of deadly poison. Sounds like asps, doesn't it? You're saying, what am I supposed to do? With it we bless our Lord and Father, with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God, from the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. Does a spring pour forth from the same opening, both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, sounds like Jesus, my brothers, bear olives or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. No man can tame the tongue. It's impossible. But what is impossible with man is possible with God. The Holy Spirit of God could and should direct your tongue. Empower your tongue. And if you're not praying that, you better get busy today. Holy Spirit, sanctify my speech. Holy Spirit, help me not to laugh at words that are dishonoring to you. Holy Spirit help me to build up people with my words, not tear them down. Holy Spirit help me not to lie with my mouth. Holy Spirit justify me as you speak your words through me. James says just what his brother Jesus said in our passage today. The best proof of whether we truly know God or not is found in how we talk and how we talk consistently throughout our lives. So I'll ask you again, Christian, how are your words? if they're not godly and getting better, you may not know the God who calls you to upright conversation. Which leads us to our last point. Condemnation. Confrontation, conversation, condemnation. Listen to me. This is tough. Jesus flatly condemned the Pharisees as evil in our passage last week and this week. And he will over and over again. Are we called to do the same? Jesus flatly condemned the Pharisees as evil in our passage last week and this week. Are we called to do the same? Absolutely. We are to condemn as evil those things that are evil in our world. We are to call sin, sin, in every aspect of our lives. And sin is to be condemned in all its forms, in all its different packages as we come across it. And while we don't have time to address every form of evil and sin in our world today... We have to make sure we don't back down from doing that when we're called to do it. Our culture is quick to call on Christians to show grace in so many cases, but all too often, what they're calling us to do is to excuse evil. And we simply cannot do that. Jesus didn't. The killing of a child in the womb is murder. And we call it murder. We dare not water that down. Do we show grace to people who are seeking abortions, who have had abortions? Absolutely. Absolutely. We are talking about condemning sin. The defamation of the institution of marriage as God designed it between one man and one woman is evil. defaming this sacred institution. And we dare not accommodate the culture's call for acceptance of any variant of that design. It is evil. Oh, you're like, oh, you just picked the big two. Yeah, I did. I picked the big two. And they are just barely, barely, barely the tip of the iceberg. There are a myriad of cultural problems and we have to be both discerning and decisive. The Word of God is our guide in what is good and what is evil. And we are to condemn, not condone, evil when it is placed before us. And I'll ask it again, does that mean that we condemn everybody who is committing sin? No, we address that in the confrontation point. Different people are in different situations and we have to be discerning in how to handle people accordingly, which makes you more dependent on the Holy Spirit. But evil is never to be coddled with or toyed with. We'll finish with two passages. At the end of a bullet-like list of points in First Thessalonians 5, verse 22 says this, Abstain from every form of evil. To abstain means to stay away from it. Well, to stay away from it, we have to be able to spot it. And once we spot it, we have to determine and decide to keep away from it. That's our only option if we're to live godly, holy lives like Jesus calls on His followers to live. Paul would put it this way to Timothy in 2 Timothy 2.19. But God's firm foundation stands bearing this seal. The Lord knows those who are His and let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from Iniquity. We condemn sin. We call sin, sin. And we abstain from it. We depart from it. And we reach out lovingly to those who are caught in it. Whether believers or unbelievers. And we do not stand and let false teachers tell us to do something else. On the authority of the Son of God Himself. May it be so in our lives, in our confrontation, our conversation, and yes, even in our condemnation. Let's pray. God, you have put before us an impossible task. Who is adequate for these things? And God, I know that in and of myself, in and of ourselves, we are not adequate for this. And I hope that we do not take what we've heard today and use it as a license to just tear people to pieces. That's not what you're calling us to. But help us to be firm. Help us to know how to best confront. How to use our conversation. And help us to know what to condemn and when to condemn it. Jesus did. And we want to follow His example. Help us by the same Spirit that empowered Him to do the same in our lives. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand and receive a benediction which we'll pull from 1 Thessalonians 5. Now may the God of peace Himself sanctify you completely. And may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. And all God's people said, Amen. You're dismissed. Stay and eat with us if you can.